Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Catherine Kramer Brunel, author of the book 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. Katie, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm excited to dig in and talk about the book yeah. As am I. I can think of no uh, better place to begin than for uh, if you could share something about yourself and what led you to write this book. So I am an associate professor of history at Purdue University, and I started this job 10 years ago, and I came here for an interview. And I noticed that they had the C-SPAN archives on campus. And so I asked to go see those archives during my interview. And it was the best question I ever asked on an interview because I got to go to the archives and I got to meet Robert Browning, who is the director of the archives. And I told him that I was thinking about my next book project because when you're on the academic job market, you always have to have a second book project. And so I was telling him that I was thinking about writing a history of cable television, because I thought that all of these dramatic changes to cable television, its expansion, it happened during the Reagan administration. And I found that a lot of historians would reference the changes that cable made, but they didn't actually dig into them. And when I was telling him this idea, he said, well, you actually might want to look at the Nixon administration because some changes happened there. And I thought, wow, this is really It was really compelling because in my first book, I ended with Nixon and I knew that he took media so seriously. And so I knew that there was a lot more there. And it turns out uh, there was so much to dig into in the the Nixon administration and that some of what happens under Reagan is a culmination of decades of political battles and negotiations over a cable television. I, I feel as though your uh, the subtitle of your book almost does it a disservice because it, it's so much more reaching, uh, wide ranging than you described. You, you spend uh, the first part of your book simply talking about, if you will, the prehistory of, mm-hmm. of, of cable television, which, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. I was wondering if we could talk a bit more about that. How does cable television get started? And, and, and let's talk in particular about the the, the 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 politics of it and and, and how it was that the, how cable television you know fit or did not fit with broadcast television and and how it was that that you know politicians uh, you know envisioned cable television and 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 how they influenced its development. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a really interesting part of the story that again I was not aware of until I started doing research. But cable television actually emerged at the same time as broadcast television. It became a way early on in the late 1940s, it became a way for those people who lived in smaller towns or rural areas or mountainous areas, that they couldn't actually access the broadcast signals from the antenna on their TV. They couldn't get it through the air. And so there were very inventive and creative entrepreneurs who thought, well, what if I take um, an antenna to the top of a mountain or the top of a hotel? and get that signal from the nearby city and then transport that signal through a wire into homes um, in this small town. And they experienced, a lot of them were engineers uh, that kind of experimented with ways to, to deliver these broadcast signals via a wire. And so in the early days, cable 
was just, it was supplemented broadcasting and it expanded its reach. It never was really envisioned as a competitor to broadcast television to offer something different. And, and that all changes in the 1960s uh, because of politics, uh, because of the broader political landscape, increasingly people across the political spectrum, grassroots activists from elected politicians, um, they're understanding that they need TV. They need TV to advance their message. And the current structure of television in the 1960s was a monopolistic structure in which network broadcasting dominated um, the information that people got in the, in their living rooms. And, and this is ABC, NBC, and CBS. They all controlled information about public affairs and news. And it was only 22 minutes a day that they were spending on the news. And so there are many perspectives and viewpoints that are excluded. And so increasingly, people are looking for alternatives to this network television monopoly and cable television emerges as a possibility to do something different rather than just supplement broadcasting. That's the part of your book that I, I, uh, I'm old enough to remember back when that monopoly was, was so much more present. And it's difficult some, for many, it might be difficult for many readers today to, 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 uh, to have that firsthand knowledge of it or, or, or maybe uh, it's so far in the past they don't remember it as well anymore, but uh, of how limiting it seemed for so many people. And that's one of the things I thought was very fascinating about that part of your book is how you have a lot of these figures, and we're not talking about you know marginal figures, we're talking about people like Pat Weaver, a, a former NBC president, who are really uh, pushing uh, a, a, a sort of at, at the margins, trying to find ways of saying, we don't, you know, this, this monopoly, which we find so restrictive, how can we change it? And And how cable television seemed to offer that alternative why cable television in particular though what why uh, what was it about cable television that offered something or promised to do something different than broadcast television itself well it really came down to the fact of the dial that with wire uh, they could offer 12 or 13 channels um so if you subscribe to cable even before cable offered its own programming uh which really became key to its success later on but even in the 1960s, if you were a cable subscriber because you couldn't get the broadcast signals from the, the nearest city, so you subscribed to cable, well, your cable um, operator could give you the, the, the three networks, but they could also microwave in distant signals. So you might be able, if you, um, let's say you lived outside of Chicago, right? Um, you could get the signals from Chicago, but you might be able to get some from Michigan, uh, maybe some from um, uh, a couple of states over from uh, from from Indiana. Um, and then they could bring in these distant signals. So all of a sudden you didn't just have the three networks dominating uh, the, the offerings every day. You could have some independent stations. You could even have, um, a, you know, um, uh, like UHF, uh, some of those early um, struggling UHF uh, signals come in. So it all came down to there's more choice. Uh, it, was, it wasn't just limited to three channels. Um, the idea of 12 channels seemed so exciting to so many people <laughs> at that time. Um, and the other thing, the other limitation of network television is it, it ended at a certain time every day. There wasn't 24-7 um, coverage of anything. Um, and so cable operators could kind of expand and, and, and experiment with those limits as well. As you described, the network 
the networks were not terribly happy with this idea of competition. And in one sense, I can I can understand why because it, it, it sort of as the as the price of that comp, of that monopoly, they were heavily regulated, and and, and they see cable television as as posing a real challenge and one that they I think feared could do an end run around because they may not face the same strictures that they did with the fairness doctrine and and, and all the other uh you know requirements that they faced to kind of rein in their monopoly just a little bit. Absolutely. So early network television executives many of them were savvy and they understood that wired television might be the future. Um, and, and so they wanted to, to dominate cable television. They wanted to control how it developed. So it was always aligned with broadcasting. So it could serve broadcasting interests. And the FCC is a huge player here um, because it really limited what cable television could do, particularly in the 1960s. Uh, there are uh, cable television is highly regulated, so it cannot compete with broadcasting. So it could not develop. Um, something an, an alternative to broadcasting. It could not compete in the top 100 television markets uh, with with with, um, uh, with broadcasters. And so again, it's very um, you know many network executives they have close relationships with presidential administrations and with FCC regulators. Um, and and th they've developed this system that's very beneficial for the networks. It's very beneficial for uh, politicians in office. Uh, but it really limits what cable television could do. So it could only serve the interests of uh, broadcasting early on. I'd like to delve a bit more into how that changes and and why that changes, because it, it's a it's a fascinating story that I I I you know didn't know a single thing about when I, before I read your book. But you describe how you know, how the federal government plays a great role in terms of shaping this, and yet they do it as you describe without adhering to a single vision. That you 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 have various uh, concepts of what cable television is going to be, and most importantly for for, the, for these figures that you talk about, it's public role. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain when does it begin to change for cable television, and and uh, what are some of the uh, visions that that uh, are, that these people who are pursuing this change are are, are seeking to uh, achieve. So it really starts to change in the late 1960s. As I mentioned, there are so many people who are clamoring for more access to television and they see their political agenda uh they're, they're um really tied to changing um and breaking down the gatekeepers of network television and bringing more diversity of perspectives uh because of course network television is powerful uh and it, it kind of creates this uh this consensus but it's very exclusionary um and um and many people are starting to call this out it's something that you know, this is the 1960s. Uh, it's a very politically divided time. Uh, but one thing uh, that people could agree upon across the political spectrum is that they needed to open up television to new perspectives. And so there are a variety of different plans that kind of come in. Uh, Lyndon Johnson starts to study communications policy and, and to think about, you know, do we need to make some changes uh, to this regulatory system? And what, what does that look like? And you've got different foundations um, that are starting to study communications policy as well. And so they're investing in new ways of thinking about public television and cable television and satellites, all of these new communications technologies. Um, you've got um, um, many liberal policymakers and progressives that are starting to think about 
wow, what can, can we use this to, to break down? You know, some people on the far left are thinking we can use cable television to, to, to break and decentralize information and, and kind of break down some of these, these hierarchies, uh, these racial and gendered hierarchies that are so embedded in politics. And so it could really upend the establishment. Many people on the, the far left think um, it in the counterculture. And then you've got um, liberal policymakers who are debating, you know, is this, is this, do we need a new deal for the information age where the government, just as they paved the interstates uh, to, to aid the economy in the post-war period, uh, do we need something like that for, you know, wiring the entire country? And so there are a lot of different um, visions for ultimately for, for the policy and the solution to this the challenge that people agree that television needed to become more accessible and more diverse. How do you make it so? And so there are a variety of different proposals um, and ways of thinking about how, how cable television could expand to meet that challenge. Yeah, it's one of the things that I, I thought was very familiar about your book because the language they use, the it was was so it was so silly to what you hear today, albeit in a very different context, where there's this concern about sort of the, this elite dominance of the media and this effort to 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 you know shake that up to change it to 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 make it more accessible to bring in different voices and I, and I find that especially funny considering how you know I I, I can I, I could see it back then especially given the 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 media landscape you described and, and yet how how uh persistent those concerns have been over time so what visions win out and 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 why do they win out uh, well one very particular vision wins out um and that is deregulation that a deregulated marketplace uh would uh, inject competition um and that that competition would then serve consumers and citizenship that it's that competition that is really the solution uh by private businesses and that vision um, of deregulation, which ultimately gains a bipartisan consensus, but that vision wins out uh, for one reason, I argue in the book, and that is Richard Nixon wins the 1968 election. I think it's a really significant moment to think about contingency and different paths not taken because a lot the the the, the, John, the Lyndon Johnson Communications Policy Study Committee is his, his task force uh, they ultimately released their report in which they're encouraging for federal investment um, in kind of developing cable television. Um, and this report comes out in December of 1968, a month after Richard Nixon has won the election. And so ultimately, Lyndon Johnson kind of tables it and says it's up for um, the, the next administration to move forward on this. And so now you have Richard Nixon, who is in charge of rethinking uh, the, the communications landscape. And this is significant because Nixon is obsessed with his media image. He blames his past failures previously on, you know, poor television strategy. Um, he really holds the press as an, as an enemy. Uh, he has this vendetta against them. He thinks that the press is out to get him. And network television in particular, he sees as trying to undermine his administration. So he's now constructing communi new communications policy with an eye to thinking about 
we need to take down the networks. Uh, and so cable television ultimately becomes this weapon and this, this war he wages um, against the media, uh, the media establishment and television networks in particular. That was part of, of the uh, imagery that I had by mind when you were described that because I was thinking about that lesson he learned back in 1952 or that lesson that he took from 1952, which is if he could simply get past the media and go directly to the people, that, that he was more successful. And, and how so much of the early uh, cable in, uh, media environment that, that, that you described fits that so perfectly. It's kind of, there, there's sort of a low red DIY to just so much of it. And, and, and as you described, it does, it, even though it, it, it adheres to that very broadly, it doesn't work out the way that, that Nixon uh, necessarily intended. You describe how Watergate plays a role here and how that, that, that notion of theater, of, 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 of media theater, you know, helps to influence as well. So, where does so in what ways do people take a more deregulated environment and then just run with it in different directions and then that's exactly what happens and, and you know and to the title of the book that's why watergate is in the title of the book because i see watergate as a, a really a turning point in how people are thinking about cable television um and and really how they're thinking about television and political power more broadly because the televised Watergate hearings really made members of Congress rethink their approach to TV. And because they saw it as those TV hearings held the executive accountable, uh, were a way to kind of pierce through this television bully pulpit uh, that Nixon had obviously used uh, to his advantage in so many ways. Um, and so uh, so they're thinking that, you know, this then cast light on Congress and it had allowed the Senate to kind of stand up to the president. And so both the House and the Senate are kind of grappling with how can we continue this? How can we continue this media attention to what we are doing by maybe televising our proceedings? Um, and it's really new members of the House, uh, the Watergate babies, as they're frequently called, that ran in 1974 pledging reform and change they're now in they're now in the house of representatives they're pushing for this change they're open to new ideas uh to rethinking um you know the the way things had always been done rethinking regulations for tv as well and so all of this it really kind of creates this perfect storm for for cable to emerge and say and for industry leaders to say why don't we televise you on cable. Uh, why don't we kind of provide this alternative programming that you've been demanding and do something different from the networks? And we'll do something that creates a very strong relationship between cable television and and members of Congress that then if, if, if House members are on, on cable TV, they're going to want cable TV to expand. They're going to be invested uh, in getting cable to as many homes as possible. And so there's a uh, this this relationship that develops uh, with mutual benefits in the aftermath of Watergate. Mm. You underscore when you get to the 1980s just how influential the presence of cable television was in the making of political careers. And the name that that's most famously associated with that is Newt Gingrich, who mm -hmm. you, and I was wondering if you could perhaps explain uh, what it was that he took advantage of and how he was able to use it to become a, a very different sort of political figure than uh, than Congress and, and 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 national politics more generally was really ready for at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Newt Gingrich comes in in this post Watergate moment, uh, and he comes in to shake up the Republican Party. 
And uh, he wins election in 1978. And he's one of these, again, younger members of Congress who are rethinking conventions, rethinking how to do it and understanding that TV matters. Um, and so as they're kind of, he's trying to shake things up, he does so by taking a different approach to TV. And, um, and so he enters office right as the fan is starting. And it takes a couple of years um, for uh, both Republicans and Democrats to kind of adjust to the camera. Uh, but then increasingly, it's actually Democrats um, that, that kind of are, are very savvy early on in the 1980s when they realize, oh, special orders. Maybe that's an opportunity to, to speak to our constituents directly to kind of dominate um, uh, the, the, the discussions of that day. The special orders happen at the end of the congressional day when everyone has left. Uh, then so anyone can go and request time to speak um, from the well of the house. And so they can then go down there and deliver a message. Traditionally, it had been used to maybe wish someone um, a happy anniversary, right? It was like kind of some of those, those things that didn't, wasn't really a legislative work that was being done, but something to insert it into the congressional record. On TV, the calculations around special orders changes. Um, I have both Democrats and then really uh, Newt Gingrich and many of his um, more right wing uh, colleagues um, in the Republican Party realized that you could go in special order. It's been a prime time television. It's at the end of the day when people are watching on TV and maybe after dinner. And he would use those to he was speaking to an empty house. Uh, but the camera was only on Gingrich and increasingly Gingrich found that he could be really assertive. He could be really aggressive. And he would call out his Democratic opponents who were not there, because, but the viewers didn't know. And so it kind of allowed us, even though it was there's some early on experimentations with ways to communicate with constituents, what ultimately it becomes under Newt Gingrich is a way for more polarizing, more extremist, um, and more divisive language to come into cable and to generate a national following. He's not thinking just about his constituents in Georgia. He's thinking about trying to find, you know, maybe 100,000, maybe 200,000 people across the country that he can kind of bring in to his more conservative um, movement. I think one of the most fascinating aspects of your book is that you talk not just about those efforts, but how the public was indeed responding to them. I, it was just fascinating to consider that basically you have I, this is maybe a little trivialization, trivializing it, but clubs, people who were friends, who were forming groups like Friends of C-SPAN, you had this small but 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 passionate base of, of devoted watchers. And and they were not a majority of the country. They're arguably not even majority of the people watching cable television, but they were there. And as you described, they were ones who were going to be more politically engaged, who were going to donate more money. And as a consequence, it was a, you know, an audience that that was very receptive to what Gingrich was doing, even if they didn't necessarily disagree with it, even if they didn't necessarily agree with it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's one of the really fascinating things that I found in my study. I was looking through these letters um, at the C-SPAN archive, uh, the letters that people would write in for a competition that was held in 1984, where they had to talk about why they watched C-SPAN. And as you're reading through, I'm reading through hundreds and hundreds of letters. And as I'm reading through it, you can see this, this search for community. The people really wanted, they, they, they tuned in because sometimes they were entertained uh, by figures like Gingrich, uh, but they were also trying to find connections um, on the cable dial. 
And, um, and so, you know, th this meant watching, um, but also, as you mentioned, forming clubs that kind of aided in their watching. And so you kind of have what, what really emerges more is this lifestyle approach to politics uh, that, that cable really uh, allows for. Um, and it's really uh, many of these cable um, channels that are focusing on political media, whether it's C-SPAN or CNN or later it's MTV and Comedy Central and, of course, MSNBC and Fox later in the 90s, is that um, they're all kind of thinking about ways to cultivate um, narrow audiences, but loyal audiences. They want to see themselves as different from these other communities that have popped up on the cable dial. And so you really do see um, the emergence of what we would later call echo chambers, but this political media is focused on building a community and keeping that community glued to the cable dial. I want to go back and talk about another one of those networks you mentioned, and that's CNN. Because with CNN, you present it as an alternative or, or a, a, a distinctly different way that that cable began to affect politics and how and uh, how politicians responded to that. Because with CNN, while on one sense we have your traditional news model, newscasters, reporters, etc., unlike the uh, media environment of the previous decades, it's one that is not just, as you mentioned, 15 or 30 minutes a day. It's one that's running you know, literally 24 hours. How how does you know how does that come out in some ways as as a contrast to C-SPAN and and in what ways does does it also have a political response and, and become more engaged politically? So you know CNN uh, um, launches a year after C-SPAN starts and C-SPAN Brian Lamb the founder of C-SPAN always emphasized that they weren't making news they were covering politics right and. So, of course, those people who are on C-SPAN are trying to make the news. Um, and so it becomes kind of a, a different approach, though. For, for C-SPAN, they just wanted to cover certain cover cover public affairs. Um, CNN is very much, it's about news. It wants to deliver the news. Um, and so it, it, you know, it has a kind of state, this is what's going on, kind of in that more traditional network news way. But then it also is looking for things to cover. Uh, it's looking for those breaking news and can kind of then generate so much attention on, um, you know, something that is unexpected um, and turn that into, again, um, fuel that people, they, they need and they want to watch, you know, that, that idea of breaking news, um, whether it is a speech, uh, whether it's an assassination attempt, uh, whether it's a girl falling down a well, you know, some of these are traditional news stories and some of these are more uh, newly constructed ones. And, and the other thing that CNN does is to fill the airtime. Again, they don't stop. Um, and that's really significant that it's on all night. Um, it doesn't go off at a certain time. So they have to fill this this, this airspace. And, um, and ultimately what they do is they bring in commentary. Uh, they bring in things like Crossfire, something that failed uh, as a radio show, but on cable, it could kind of tap into that left versus right, you know, kind of more combative uh, and more entertaining approach to discussing uh, political issues. And so you've got this back and forth, um, and then you've got a variety of commentary. You've got pundits who are going on. We're offering their views on what's happening. And so the very concept of the news changes uh, with CNN. And there's also another important thing, too, is that Heath Turner proudly claims that the news can make money. 
Of course, the news had always made money for the networks, but they always said that the news was their civic responsibility. Um, and it was kind of this myth that then allowed that regulatory system to function because they say, you know, we're, we're losing money on the news because we're doing this as um, a good citizen, a corporate citizen, um, to justify these massive profits that they're making in. Well, uh, uh, Ted Turner says the, the news can be profitable. And here's all the different ways that we can make money on the news. Um, and I think that's the, celebrating the profitability of the news is also a key change that CNN introduces. Now, we've been talking about networks that we traditionally would associate with politics, but then you bring in a third network, and that's MTV. And MTV is kind of a, a, a seems a, 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 at first glance a bit of an outlier. How did they get involved? And how do they create what you term the MTV presidency? But so MTV uh, gets involved in the 1992 election. Um, it's a time when cable had been deregulated -re um, in 1984. And surprisingly, <laughs> um, they raised the rates. Um, and cable subscribers were angry and they wrote their legislators. And so now all of a sudden they're... Um, people like Al Gore um, are leading the charge to, pa to pass re-regulation of the industry to really limit what they can charge their subscribers. So it's a very precarious time for cable television. And, um, and so they're looking, again, to create this goodwill. MTV is one of many cable channels that think, let's get involved in the 1992 election. They also realize, MTV realizes that they have this loyal audience of younger um, Americans who tuned in very, very loyally uh, to MCD. And they thought, well, what if we give them news that that matters to them? Then they don't have to turn the dial. They don't have to find out what's happening uh, about the election from ABC, NBC, or CBS. Like, they can just get all their information about the election here. And so it was a good business strategy. It was a good political strategy uh, for MCD to kind of get involved. And ultimately... Uh, many uh, many politicians initially don't take MTV seriously, but Bill Clinton does. And Bill Clinton does because he is desperate. She is, and his campaign is really, uh, uh, really failing, uh, really struggling in June of 1992. And so he goes on any media outlet that will have him. And that included MTV. And he really, he was Clinton at his most charming. He was connecting with individuals, but he was dominating the conversation. Um, and I think this is what I call the MTV presidency. Um, it allows him to really control the narrative, not to just kind of appear um, as a celebrity to make people like him, but to really shape their understanding of events uh, through entertainment by appearing um, on this, uh, this MTV show. And it's very, um, it's, it's about thinking about the right demographics, right? He's just um, personalizing his message, trying to forge this, this individual connection with younger audiences, um, telling them perhaps something different than he's telling other audiences. And so I think that this is um, the MTV president. It's about creating that personal loyalty, uh, using entertainment to engage, um, and thinking about not appealing to all Americans or even a majority of Americans, but the right demographics. Uh, those who are loyal and passionate and will turn out to vote. Mm -hmm. We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? So I am talking a lot about the book, <laughs> <laughs> which is wonderful to finally be able to share it uh, with everyone. And uh, my next project, I'm really interested in 
kind of it's almost a sequel uh, to this, and and that is uh, the the scandal politics that really play out on the cable dial, but also with the emergence of the internet in the 1990s. Uh, so even more to come, um, focusing especially on cable news in the second book or the third book. Well, it sounds like a fascinating subject. I look forward to reading it when it comes out. Thank you. I'm looking forward to writing it and researching it. And, you know, this this book took eight years. But who knows how, how long the next one will take. <laughs> well, well, Katie, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for having me.